Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on September 8th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. And in this episode, we'll chat with neuroscientist Dwayne Godwin from the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. I was down at Wake Forest recently to talk to graduate science students and met with Dwayne Godwin, who coincidentally is an unusual regular contributor to Scientific American Mind magazine. He's writing the stories for comic strips about brain science that appear on the back page of each issue of Mind. We talk about that effort as well as his meetings with members of Congress and the transformation of tobacco country into a leading biomedical research region. Tell me about this foray into cartoons that we're doing in Scientific American Mind. Well, it's an exciting new opportunity for me. I'm a practicing neuroscientist, and it was uh, a challenge that was very attractive to try to put one of the most complex things uh, in the universe into the format of an illustrative narrative. Uh, Jorge. That, that complex thing being our brain. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So um, this started... I guess about two years ago when Jorge Cham, who is a famous comic, comic strip artist on his own, he does uh, Ph.D. comics uh, and is quite famous for that, as many uh, graduate students and postdocs will attest to. Uh, he and I began to collaborate on this project for uh, the Stanford Design School magazine called Ambidextrous. And Ambidextrous is a, a very eclectic magazine that caters to a, a, the design community. And we uh, took topics from each issue and began to develop comic strips around them. How are you able to get anything of value in this very complex field across in this simple kind of format? I, I, that might have come out in a little bit of a pejorative <laughs> way, and I don't mean it that yeah. way. I mean it as a, as a real informational uh, question because I know it can be done. Yes. So what what do you try to keep in mind as you're working on it? Well, I, I can tell you the process, and I think in telling you the process, it might tell you a bit uh, about how you break this down, uh, this complex information down into a simpler format. Uh, the process is I heavily research each of these comics, and so each uh, comic strip might have upwards of twelve to thirteen panels. The panels each have a digestible bit of information that has been researched from the scientific literature. So each comic could, in essence, have a bibliography associated with it. Now, what we tend to do is we push it as complex as we can, but still be approachable. The key is, uh, can a layperson understand it? And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to reach from inside the laboratory and share some of the, the amazing things that we're able to accomplish in neuroscience with a broader audience. We think this is important because, uh, you know, as you know, the economy is um, not in its best shape ever. And we feel that science investment is important from a government perspective. And we feel that because we are using taxpayers' money, that the public has a right to know what we're doing. And I think this is just another way of sharing the wonders of the brain with the public and to show them that investment in brain research is a worthy endeavor. And most of these comics are going to be related 
to a specific article in Scientific American Mind? Yes. We've been given an enormous amount of freedom uh, by the editor to both develop independent, standalone comics, but also on occasion we'll take off on a theme that might be present in some of the regular articles within Scientific American Mind. And it's fun. Uh, that's that's oh, a key yeah. thing. Well, of course. You know, it's uh, it's something that appealed to me. I, when I grew up, I was going to be a commercial artist. And then I really became enthralled by science and the idea of discovery. And, and nothing offers that more than science. And I think neuroscience in particular is such a merger of different sciences that it, it became appealing to me. Uh, this is really a manifestation of that. It, it's fun. It's a merger of my, you know, the things that I like to do for fun and the things that I do uh, for a living. So it's uh, it's a great merger. Here's a key question that may uh, give a lot of way to uh, potential readers. When you were a kid, were you a DC kid or a Marvel kid? <laughs> I was a Marvel kid. Aha. Uh-huh. Very interesting. But uh, I've, gr- I've grown to appreciate DC. Okay. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, the, the taxpayer and... and you know, getting the word out to the people who support so much research in the country. Uh, you have recently returned from a trip to D.C. where you spoke to some Congress people from the area here around Wake Forest. So what's the mood in Congress right now about funding science? I would say guardedly optimistic. I think there is a realization that we live in very tough economic times, but there is a growing realization that research and development is one of the best engines we have to grow our economy. There are many things that can be outsourced to other countries and should be outsourced to other countries, but innovation is not one of them, and America shouldn't take a backseat to anybody with respect to the cutting-edge research that we do and the importance of that research and the connections that we can make in applied research that will help us to grow out of this mess that we're in right now. Can you give me a specific example of the type of thing you're talking about, something that's reasonable to outsource and something that we should never outsource? Well, I don't mind outsourcing every single uh, call center overseas. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a it's a great thing uh, for those who have that opportunity, and it's a moneymaker for a lot of people that need to make money. But is it something that is important as an economic engine? Is it making something? No, it's not. It's selling something. What we need to be good at is creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship. Those are the, the keys to growing an economy, in my view. So we should really be concentrating on the batteries that uh, you won't have to charge for months Precisely, at a time. And because so, you know, and this gets into politics, I suppose, but there is a connection there between research and national strength. Uh, you know, if we have independent means of generating our own power, if we have, uh, you know, the next best lithium-ion battery, then that's going to make us less reliant on foreign sources of oil and energy, and that's a good thing. That means less of our people are going over fighting uh, battles to try to uh, secure sources of energy, and it means that we're, uh, you know, using less of our natural resources. And we're being smarter. We're following the evidence and doing the right thing. The NIH funding situation, currently less than 10% of all grant applications wind up being funded. I would say much less than 10% at the moment, yes. How much less, actually? Um, I would say, you know, it's it's on the order of 7%. 7%. You know, this is an average across all NIH institutes, but Mm -hmm. it's quite bad right now. And 
in decades past, it was as, as high as 30 percent. Yeah, it was uh, certainly in on that order. And so what do you say to somebody who's considering a, an academic career uh, as a scientist, as a research scientist, who will likely be dependent on NIH funding when it's so difficult to get it? And what talk about the general level of NIH funding over the last 20 years. How has that changed? Well, certainly uh, funding has changed over time. We had a period uh, in the 90s when NIH funding doubled. But then after that, the commitment from Congress um, dissipated. And recently, the last few years, the rate of increase of funding for all agencies, NSF, NIH, uh, has not kept pace with the rate of inflation. And so that means the buying power has decreased. And the estimates that I've seen put that uh, decrease upwards of 17% uh, since that period of the doubling. So as a nation, we've actually invested less in, in real dollars. In real dollars, we're investing less at a time when I would say we need to invest more. In than we order. did 15 years ago. Exactly, exactly. What I would say to young people coming into science is hold on because I think things are going to get better. I think there is a realization in Congress based on my meetings and a realization certainly with the incoming administration that science is a worthy endeavor, and I feel that uh, the decisions that are being made at the upper levels of our leadership now are based on evidence. And for scientists, that's a good thing because what it means is that that realization that Science is our future and is critical to our future is uh, is going to be realized at those levels as well. Uh, in my meetings on Capitol Hill as part of the Society for Neuroscience Capitol Hill Day, this is an annual event where um, chapter representatives, we even had students up there yesterday and postdocs, making the case to members of Congress about the need for funding for NIH and NSF. Uh, to increase the funding. And one of the, there were a couple of interesting things that happened as a result of that. One was I totally blew away one of the legislative aides by saying, I'm not asking you to put money in my pocket. All I'm doing is asking you to give me the opportunity to apply for funding. You know, and it was like, well, you're here asking for money. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking you to move that that bar so that it's not under 10% anymore, that it's, you know, in the 20%, 25% range. I might not get any of that money. I might not be successful in competing for it. And I think it was an interesting transition. It was like, oh, you're not asking for money for yourself. You're asking for money for, you know, just the the aggregate. And and I think that that was interesting. Make the pie higher, as someone famously recently said. Precisely, precisely. Um, And then the other part of it was that there are certainly uh, individuals on Capitol Hill that are not amenable to spending and are, you know, against taxes. They don't see a role for government in the support of research. And there are individuals that, um, I think for what, whatever reason, whether it's a political reason, whether it's a personal or religious region, r- reason, um, have difficulty in their support for uh, basic research, especially as it applies to things like funding for stem cells, embryonic stem cells. Um, there are, uh, you know, certainly different types of stem cell funding. So one of the situations that we got into was a discussion of those different types. 
Some individuals are against embryonic stem cells. However, they're uh, quite amenable to uh, stem cell research as it applies to things like amniotic stem cells or um, reprogramming of adult stem cells. That was an interesting conversation. So in approaching individuals that don't agree with you, my approach was to say simply that think of scientists as individuals that follow the evidence and we're going to be truth tellers to you. And I offered myself and I would suggest that other scientists offer themselves to their various members of Congress and say, look, you need information about a given topic. You give me a call and I'm going to give you the very best information I have based on the evidence that I have because that's my role. I'm not a policymaker. I might favor certain policies, but you're the policymaker. So you call me. I'm not, you know, we may not agree and see eye to eye on everything, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And that, I think, was a, a very useful approach because it's, okay, I will give you a call. And probably uh, we're not going to see eye to eye, but I feel as though there's a certain level of trust there where I know that even though we, we will not sit at this table and agree on everything, that you're going to be an honest broker of information for me. And I, I think we have to engage that way. It's sort of like Nixon in China. You know, you've got to go and you've got to make the effort and you've got to have that level of engagement in order to get anywhere. Otherwise, we're at loggerheads with people that are ideologically opposed to what we have to, to offer. And so you I think keep the lines of communication open. Exactly. And that, you know, that sort of thing where we're at, you know, in this polarized state, it's not useful for anybody. It doesn't help science and it doesn't help those that uh, whose congressional districts depend upon the innovation that science has to offer. Some really uh, interesting historical developments on the Wake Forest campus because this is tobacco country. Yes. You still see the smokestacks that say, R.J. Reynolds tobacco. Exactly. And uh, and yet, I mean, one of the things that blew me away when I got here was the science that this is a smoke-free campus. <laughs> you can't even <laughs> smoke outdoors on this campus. And, you know, I, I was down here for a summer 30 years ago, and the the air was just rich with the smell <laughs> of tobacco. And to see the, the cultural change that, that has gone on is really remarkable. But it's also pretty impressive that the very buildings that used to be tobacco research buildings have been converted. Talk about that a little bit. Well, there's no doubt that tobacco is a very important part of the economic infrastructure of this region historically. However, it may surprise you to know that biomedical sciences is actually the highest employer right now. We've overtaken and surpassed tobacco as a major employer. Now, part of that has to do with just, you know, the, the number of spin-out companies that are that's coming out of the biomedical sciences. Part of it has to do with just a realization that in order to be competitive in that new environment, we have to invest in those things that are, that are going to produce that kind of engine for uh, productivity and entrepreneurship. Uh, it, it is interesting to see the transition that's going on downtown in the context of building out a research park. There is approximately 182 acres that has been set aside to be a premier facility for this region for biomedical sciences. It will be a, a campus unlike anything this region has seen. It will be, it will include medical school education, graduate school education, 
space for companies, and all of these things will be coexisting for the first time in this area. So there will be greater opportunities to build bridges between what are historically silos, uh, you know, from research and education to research and development. And I, I think it's a very exciting time to be here. And individual buildings that used to be tobacco research buildings are now going yeah. to be structures in which the cures for tobacco-related diseases are, are pursued. That certainly will be the case, that those things that have historically not been conducive to good health are, are going to be an engine, uh, even unintentionally, for those cures and new treatments that will help ameliorate those very same uh, disease states. So, uh, you know, it's an exciting time, and, it, and it's, I think it's, uh, you know, we're not what we used to be. I think the whole country is seeing a, a sea change with respect to economic development and the realization that the old ways of doing things are not necessarily the best ways, even though sometimes they may be the more comfortable things. We've got to all get out of our comfort zone and, and, and make those kind of changes where, you know, we're thinking things anew, we're repurposing the old in service of the new and the innovative. One of the interesting changes is the, the very name of the school here, the medical school. It used to be the Bowman Gray Medical Campus, and uh, Bowman Gray was the chairman of the board of RJR <laughs> Reynolds Tobacco. That's right. And, you know, there's no doubt that this institution owes a lot to that family. So, uh, I, I think like everything else, there, there is, uh, there's a realization that new economies need new ways of thinking. And part of that is built upon certainly a firm history and contribution. But there is an extension and an outreach to, to new technologies, new ways of, of processing information, new ways of interaction, uh, that, you know, everyone has a family. And everyone wants uh, to see the, the region here to develop, to, to uh, take advantage of the new economy. And, and I think all of that falls under that category of a realization that a new economy is coming and we better be prepared for it. I just want to point out we did not purposely insert the cough sound effect while we were talking <laughs> about the history of tobacco in the region. That just came from an office next door. Yeah, actually, those are students that are taking uh, an exam in first-year neuroscience. So we're, we're very close to the heat, <laughs> as it were. It's, you can feel the, 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 tension, the brain the... working through the wall there. Check out Dwayne Godwin's brainy comics called Mind in Pictures on the back page of each issue of Scientific American Mind magazine. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Massachusetts leads the nation in the percentage of working-age people who do not have health insurance. Story two, pharmaceutical giant Pfizer settled pending lawsuits by agreeing to cough up a $2.3 billion payout. Story three, wood ash mixed with human urine makes a good fertilizer for your tomato plants. And story four, cheap drinks at college bars lead to more students getting drunk. Time's up. Story four is true. Cheap drinks do lead to more drinking. 
big surprise. But the study in the journal Alcoholism Clinical and Experimental Research does counter claims by bar owners that drink specials bring in patrons who wouldn't be able to afford to drink at all otherwise. The study found that for each $1.40 increase in the average price of a drink, a patron was 30% less likely to leave the bar with a blood alcohol level above the usual legal limit of 0.08. Story three is true according to a study in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. The combination of wood ash and human urine boosts plant growth and increases the tomato yield over untreated plants. The micturate mixture is about as good as conventional fertilizer. Remember, that's human urine, not New York Giants defensive and Osseumanura. And story two is true. Pfizer did settle the lawsuits by agreeing to fork up $2.3 billion. The money will likely be used to shore up states' Medicaid programs. Pfizer was accused of making wrongful marketing claims for four different medications, not to mention offering kickbacks to doctors to prescribe the drugs for unapproved uses. Remember, if your deception lasts for more than four hours, consult a lawyer immediately. All of which means that story one about Massachusetts having the highest rate of working-age people without health insurance is totally bogus, because a study out of Baylor University using 2006 data finds that Texas, the fastest-growing state, is also the most uninsured. 31% of those Texans aged 18 to 64 do not have insurance. No wonder they want to secede. The national average is 20%. Other states with poorly insured populations were New Mexico, Florida, Louisiana, and California. The best states for insurance coverage were Maine, Wisconsin, Hawaii, number two, Massachusetts, and the big winner, Minnesota. Maybe it's the border with Canada. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, as well as slideshows and videos, not to mention the 60-Second Science, 60-Second Earth, and 60-Second Psych podcasts. For Science Talk, the Big Daddy podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thanks for clicking on us.